Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the first Sunday of March, right? This is kind of when it all went a little bit uh, sideways last year, guys. March, you remember? Uh, we're about a year removed from, uh, from the, the drama that has persisted now uh, into a year. I'm so glad that you've uh, here. Those of you who are here in person, we're so glad that you're here. And if you're watching online, welcome to you as well. We've been in the Gospel of John uh, for several months. And we've been in the, the, the particular chapter that we've been in, chapter 7, uh, for multiple weeks. And we're going to wrap that up today. I had, I had the intention of being able to wrap up John 7 last week. Uh, but I knew as we were getting down toward the end, as we looked at the passage we did last week, uh, that, that I was going to have to super rush to try to get in those last few verses. And so I didn't want to uh, do that in injustice. And so we're going to be wrapping up John 7 today. Remember how it began? Uh, it began with Jesus traveling in Galilee because he didn't want to come into Judea because the Jews, the leadership of the Jews, they were trying to kill him. And, and then John gives us this specific mention of the Festival of Shelters. Uh, you might call it the Feast, some people call it the Feast of Booze, certain translations, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now it's a very, very important part of the year, of, in the year for Israel. It was really one of the high points. It was one of the three festivals that uh, if you lived within a reasonable distance of Jerusalem, the expectation is you would be there. So it was kind of required. But people wanted to be there. They were living out this, this, these, the, this um, uh, remembrance that God had first spoken to Moses in Leviticus chapter 23 when he talked about this particular festival and he said, this is a permanent statute for you throughout your generations. Celebrate it in the seventh month, their seventh month, the 15th day of that month. You are to live in shelters for seven days. All the native born of Israel must live in shelters. Why would they do that? So that your generations, excuse me, generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So those, those themes are very prominent in the Feast of Booze, in the Festival of Shelters. That it was God who, it was, a, it was a humbling moment because it was kind of punitive that they were required to live in shelters because they were wandering in the wilderness and they wouldn't have had to have done it if they would have followed God's lead initially when they left Egypt and scouted out Canaan. Because they didn't do that, they were in the wilderness and they had to live in shelters, but they also got to live in shelters. God provided them for them. For them. And so God is, is, there's this dual thing of it's kind of humbling, but it's also a remembrance of God's providence and his presence throughout that entire time, even in their disobedience. How many people are thankful that God is present even in your disobedience, right? If he wasn't present in our disobedience, we wouldn't have much of a relationship with him, would we? Because it's, uh, there are times when we're, we're walking in our way and God, God in his grace, in his abiding grace, comes after his people that we might know him more deeply and experience him more fully. So the people did just that on an annual basis. They built these shelters, and they were, they were all over the city of Jerusalem. I told you they were on the rooftops. They were in the streets. They were in the, tem they were in the temple court, uh, actually. They were in the, in the squares that kind of like were in the neighborhoods. They were all over, and it was an incredibly festive. The city swelled. And it was an incredibly festive time. And so at that time, Jesus' brothers say to him, hey, you know, since, since it's the time for the Festival of Shelters, and since everybody's going to be there, and since you want to be this big public figure guy, 
Then why don't you go and show yourself? And Jesus says, no. Remember the word we talked about? It's an important aspect of this, passage, of this chapter is Jesus says, it's not my kairos moment yet. It's yours. Like, it's time to go. You should go. There's no other reason that you shouldn't go. But for me, my time has not yet fully come, so it's not time for me to come. So he didn't go with his brothers. He didn't go with the family caravan. He instead came at a later time. Verse 14 reminded us the festival was about half over, and so Jesus shows up fashionably late halfway through, the, halfway through the celebration, and he went up to the temple, and he began to teach. Now, as he got there, remember, the people were murmuring about him. Some people were like, this is a good dude, man. This is a good guy. And other people were saying, no, he's deceiving the people. He's not good. What he's doing is not good. So Jesus begins to teach, and, and the people are amazed, right? Because Jesus was this unlearned guy. He wasn't that bag of books like those rabbis typically are. He wasn't that person who had spent all that time and had all that knowledge. He didn't go through that extensive, you know, ancient rabbinical seminary training. So how does this guy speak like this? And Jesus defines the source of his teaching, you remember? He says, he talks about him who sent me. And that, of course, prompted a very uh, kind of like... Um, uh, contentious interaction, and, and that we see a lot of that in this chapter, the chapter, these contentious interactions that Jesus has with different people. And in fact, as all of this is happening and Jesus is kind of doubling down and tripling down on, his, on who he is and where he's from and what he's all about, some of the people in, the, in Jerusalem then begin to say, isn't, isn't this the guy that, that they're trying to kill? They had heard the rumor about that. They knew of the murder plot that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And, and they're like, but wait, look, he's, he's speaking publicly. Remember that word, parousia? He's speaking publicly. He's like, he's speaking openly. He's speaking frankly. He's speaking like no holds barred. He's not, you, you know, he doesn't have much of a filter. However you would understand that, you know, there's no, there's no caution there. He's just like letting it rip. And, and, and nobody's saying anything to him. Why is that? That idea that he's speaking openly and frankly as well. The, the word also has the, the meaning uh, as well, a little bit of an, um, kind of an implication towards speaking courageously. And so it, it probably means more of the one than the other, but I do think the courageous speech, it took courage for Jesus to do that because, of course, he knew about the murder plot as well. So the authorities, uh, you know, the, are, 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 are there and, of course, they're in, uh, giving their opinion on things and the, and the crowd are, are saying in, in response to their thoughts about Jesus speaking so openly and publicly, they're like, well, wait, do the authorities think that he's the Messiah? I mean, that, that can't be right, right? Because I thought the authorities were trying to kill him, but are we confused about all of this? And that confusion and division is something that's really part of it. Then we see Jesus at, at one point, not does he, is he only publicly teaching with a small group, but at one point he's teaching in the temple and he cries out. Remember, Kratzo, the way a, a raven cries out. He speaks aloud. It's, a, it's used literarily in the, in the Gospels to identify something that's coming after it that's going to be very important. So he cries out, you know me. You know where I am from. But the one who sent me is true. Oh, I'm sorry, where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. Remember, who are these people that he's talking to? The chosen people of God. They're the people of Yahweh. They're God's people. And Jesus says, you don't even know him. I know him. And because I am from, because I am from him. And he sent me. 
He sent me what? Remember that word, pimpo? We talked about that on multiple occasions. He sent me on this temporary errand. I was sent by God. I was dispatched by God on this temporary errand. So we have more interaction between Jesus and, and other people, and the people are, are perplexed, and, and Jesus tries to help them understand who he is and where he's from. Of course, just like he's talking here about that being the sent one, who he knows, what he's there to do, what he's already done, and eventually where he's going, where he's headed back to, the very place from which he was sent and to the person that he came from. And then, of course, last week, as we walked down through, after all these interactions, we talked about a very important part of this celebration that's happening known as the Festival of Shelters. It's the water ceremony. The water ceremony would take place in the morning. Now, on the night before, like I said, there would be all night singing and dancing and music and uh, torch jugglers, and there would be oil-burning lamps all over the city. And so after this late-night partying, the, all the Jews would get up and kind of rub the sleep out of their eyes, maybe pop a breath mint in, and they would head down toward the temple. And there, there, there the priest would do this water ceremony thing. He would, he would go over to the pool of Siloam. By the way, the, the Siloam means scent. It's a kind of interesting, isn't it? All, all, these, all this imagery of Jesus being the scent one. Now they draw from the pool whose name is scent. And he has this pitcher, this gold pitcher of water. And he marches up to the altar. And he walks around the altar. And it's been said that on the seventh day of the feast... He would walk around seven times, and when he got around the sixth time, then the priest would meet him, another priest would meet him, and they would walk up, one would have the wine, one would have the water, and they would, they would hold it up, right? And what did the crowd say? Shout! And they'd shout, higher, higher, higher! And it was just a, an incredibly festive, jo- uh, uh, joyous celebration. As he was drawing that water, the, the crowd would, 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 would chant, would recite, therefore, therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, quoting Isaiah 12, 3. And that's what this celebration was all about. This late night, early morning celebration every day. For seven days, they did all of this. And they, this so this idea of this, this living water, this water being poured out, these, these, these springs of salvation, on then, John tells us on that very last, was it the seventh day of the feast? Was it the eighth day, that sacred assembly? We're not sure. But either one, it's either as they're experiencing that incredible drama of seven times around the altar and the shouting higher, higher grows and grows and the incredible celebration. It could be on that day or it could be on the day, the eighth day where there was no water. And so Jesus made up for the lack of that water with this statement. Jesus stood up and he cries out a second time. If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He follows that in verse 38 by saying, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. We talked about that powerful statement, that powerful invitation that Jesus gives to us that we can be the people that God pours himself into because John clarifies that Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit here. He pours himself into us so that we may what? We may allow that to pour out to others. Even in things like we did the last couple of weeks of February, loving on one another. Even those times when you're serving in various capacities or sharing with a neighbor or doing some act of of kindness and love, whatever it might be, those ways in which God can flow out of us in our everyday lives because he has first poured that in us 
Jesus gives us that invitation. So all that brings us to the very end of the chapter. So much has happened, right? And by the way, all of this stuff in John 7, it's all unique to John. We don't find it in nearly all of it, all, like 98%, 90, probably more like 99 plus percent of John chapter 7 is unique to John. It's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in Luke. So we're very indebted for, to, to John uh, hearing the inspiration of God and, 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 and God blessing us with this particular perspective that John gives us on the Feast of Tabernacles in relationship to the person of Jesus. So as you can imagine, there was a wide and assorted, as you've already seen, if you've, if you've been around, if you've been watching, if you've been listening, if you've been here in person, there's been a wide variety, an assortment of reactions, right? Right? He's a good guy. He's a deceiver. He might be the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. All that kind of stuff, right? Well, that's what we're going to see as we wrap up this chapter. We're going to see this wide variety of reactions to Jesus. And it's kind of like John kind of um, groups it into three settings. So we're going to see three different settings. So we're going to read one of those settings, then we're going to kind of see the reactions within them, move on to the second, and then do so with the third one as well. Before we do that, can I pray with you for just a sec? God, Thank you for the gift of your word. It is food for us. And we need it. And we need you to be our teacher today. Take these words that you inspired John to record for us and help them, Lord, to just as we were talking earlier in, in, the, in the Calvary Loves One Another recap, God, help it move from our head to our heart to our life. We don't want to be just more informed today, but we want to be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you're following along, pick it up on, in verse 40 of John chapter 7. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, whatever one you want to use. Feel free to do so on your device. John says this, when some from the crowd, heard these words, these words of Jesus about this idea of, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So as we begin to get into this particular group, but also a word that would characterize the rest of this chapter is the word division. <laughs> now, in our culture today, we're kind of familiar with this word, aren't we? We live it. Who lives it on a daily basis? With your family, with your friends, with your even with, in the body of Christ. And that's real, right? That's just real talk. That's no put down on anyone. I, I experience it. We, we all do. And they're experiencing it over the person of Jesus, clearly, right? John tells us the crowd was divided because of him. There was a lot of division going on. But as we could see, in the midst of that division, there were some people who were attracted to him, right? You can see that some people say, this, this truly is the prophet. I mean, they had in mind what Moses, the prophecy that Moses had made about the prophet that would come. And so they're like, this, this must be that guy. 
I mean, I, the, the idea that they hadn't seen anything like it. And even some saying, and sometimes it seems that these terms are almost used interchangeably, but they're not exactly used interchangeably, the prophet and the Messiah. But certainly they're, they're very close uh, uh, cousins to one another. And so, again, some are very attracted as well when they say, this guy is the Messiah. This truly is the prophet. This truly is the Messiah. But at the same time, at the, at, while there is that attraction, while they, almost there's that intrigue that they have that maybe Jesus is who he says he is, you can see there's also some misunderstanding that's based on misinformation, right? There's, and we're going to see this a little bit. There's, the, they, the, there's, a, there's a huge um, theme around the role of Galilee and Galileans throughout the rest of this chapter. We've already seen it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point that out to you. We've already seen it in the, in the, in John, the Gospel of John, but we're, we're really going to see it in these verses that we're covering today because there's a misunderstanding about the role of Galilee and about God using Galilee in, in his mission. But there's also some misinformation, right? They, they're kind of right to one respect. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting. If you do the study, without the help of the New Testament looking back on the prophecies, there actually is no clear and explicit prophet, prophecy that relates to the birthplace of Jesus, again, without the help of the New Testament looking back on it and saying, this is the fulfillment. Meaning, it's never mentioned that the Christ, the Messiah, his birthplace would be in this. So there's mention of the son that would be given. There's mention of the ruler that would come. And, and it's rightly to, right for us to understand that his birthplace would be from Bethlehem. And that's probably exactly how they understood all of that imagery of the ruler and the son that would be given. And all of those multiple references that do address that he's going to come from the line of David. And his birthplace is going to be Bethlehem. But it is with our, we have the privilege of being able to hear the New Testament writers tell us that the, full, the prophecy was fulfilled when this happened. So we're able to look back and understand it to be a, a prophecy of the Christ being born there even more than they would. The, although, again, that's why they're saying that their understanding is that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. But there's misinformation in, in that obviously they don't know that he was born in Bethlehem, right? So, it, and I, it just struck me in a very different way. Wouldn't you say there's, when it comes to the person of Jesus, when it comes to the things of God, would you say there's some misunderstanding and misinformation out there? I, I, I'm, I think it would be interesting to do a poll. And, a, and you, we could start in the church, and then after we felt really humbled by it, we could go out in the community and say, did Jesus say this? And fill in the blank. And I wonder how we do about really accurately recalling what Jesus did actually say, what he did actually do, what God does stand for, and what he doesn't, right? So I think misunderstanding and misinformation, it's always a part of the, the, the struggle as it come, when it comes to the person of Jesus. So the, they're, they're ignorant of the, of the fact that, again, that he was born there. But also, in addition to some people being attracted, there's this misin, misunderstanding and misinformation. There's certainly some rage too, right? Some of them wanted to seize him. Now, it's interesting this is all in reference to the crowd, right? This particular setting, it's all talking about people in the crowd. This is referring to the pilgrims, not, probably not the Jerusalem mob. Remember, there's, a, there's the identification of the people, this Jerusalemites, a phrase that's not used hardly ever in the New Testament. It's not referring to the Jerusalemites. It's probably referring to the pilgrims, the people who came to the feast. 
And so all of these things in this particular section are about the crowd. And it says that some of them actually wanted to seize him. Now, they had no authority to do that. <laughs> they are not people of authority that, that are being referred to here. They, they're, they're, there's really no way in which they could act on what they were going to do, but they wanted to. But I would suggest to you that it, John gives us a little detail that it wasn't only because they weren't allowed to seize Jesus that it didn't happen. I, th- I would suggest to you that when, when, uh, when John says no one laid hands on him, it's also the idea, and I've talked about this earlier in, the, in, the, in, in our study in John 7, Jesus' mission will always prevail. It's not, time for him to put, for, for, it's not time for people to put their hands on him. It's not time for him to be seized and arrested. It's not time for him to be tried and convicted. It's not time for him to be executed. That time will come. But it's not that day. And so because it's, I would suggest that it's not just because the people didn't have the authority to do it. It's because, of course, under the sovereignty of God, our ultimate, the ultimate authority, it was not time for that to occur. So that first group of people, this crowd, there's great division. There's some attraction. There's this misunderstanding. But also there's this ultimate rage. Now, before we look at our our second group interaction, we kind of got to go back and remember something that happened earlier in chapter 7. Do you remember the Pharisees, when they heard the crowd doing all that murmuring, you remember how the crowd was this this secret debate, all this murmuring, this low-tone debate about who is he, where is he from, what's he doing, what do the people think of him, and all these different debates that are going on in the crowd. When the Pharisees heard about that, what did they do? They sent the chief, uh, they sent uh, servants to arrest him. The chief priests and the Pharisees together sent servants to arrest Jesus. So the next group of group interaction we're going to see is when the servants come back to kind of report on the mission that they had given. Now know this. The servants of the Pharisees and the chief priests have no, what do I want to say, no latitude to make a judgment call. I would say little, uh, that's an overstatement. They would have very little latitude to make a judgment call. They were sent by the Pharisees and the chief priests to carry out a mission. I, I wasn't in the, in the military. Some of you sitting here have been. Some of you have been on each end of those orders, right? You've maybe been in a place where you gave orders, and you've uh, been in a place where you received orders. But think of it this way. They were on a military mission. It wasn't their job to debate it with their commanding officer. It wasn't their job to take all this latitude with determining whether or not they really wanted to fulfill the mission. They were simply given the mission by these people to carry out the seizing of Jesus. Make sense? Now, there could be things that go wrong. There might have been some reason that they respond that they do, but, but I want you to have that in mind as we look at how they responded to what happened. So, the servants came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're back now, right, from their mission. Who asked them, uh, where is he at? <laughs> Where's Jesus? What was their mission? Seize Jesus. And so they come back, and they're like, why didn't you bring him? Now, it's interesting, again, thinking about the fact that, that how they, they, they were under these authority. They were under the, uh, the authority of these, of these officials. They were there simply to carry out this mission, to carry out the orders, to do as they were told. There, would, there could be a time where, again, there, there, something could come up. And usually, if something would come up, what would we, what would we expect from someone? Kind of like parents, you know how this goes. Um, I asked you to mow the yard. I actually told you to mow the yard. 
Told you to make your bed. Told you to do your dishes. Told you to empty the dishwasher. Told you to, whatever. I know, kids, it's tough, right? We're always, you're always getting told to do something. Right? And, and, and you, so you say, why didn't you do that? And what happens? There's some litany of excuses, right? Some litany of reasons. And so, you know, they didn't say, oh, he got away. They didn't say, oh, we couldn't do it. They didn't say, you know what? The crowd is so stirred up over them, man. They are just like, we were afraid of a riot. We thought it would get out of control. We were fearful for our lives. We didn't know what might break bad on this, man. I mean, it was going to go incredibly sideways, so we just decided not to do that. We used our better judgment. We know that's what you told us to do. That's not what they say at all. Look at what they say. The servants answered and say, no man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? I wish I could say that with the pretense that it comes <laughs> by, from the Pharisees. Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Well, clearly we see that the servants are wowed. The servants are wowed by him. Now, our translation kind of uh, says it the way that, that most English translations say it. And that would be, the, the kind of the basic translation would be, their answer would be, never did man speak like this man. De- never did a person speak like this person, right? Never did a guy speak like this guy. It, there's, not, there's nothing there. And that, and that, that could be the, the, the way it, it should be understood and, and interpreted and translated and interpreted. But there's also, it, at a more base level, when you, when you look at the actual, actual, actual formation of the Greek, it actually says, never did man speak. And it's almost as if, in John, in John, with John saying it in, in that way, it's almost as if John is reinforcing what Jesus has said. Never did man speak because guess what? Man isn't speaking here. When Jesus is speaking, who's speaking? You know, it's the correct answer, Sunday school answer to everything, right? Just say his name, God. A man isn't speaking, God is speaking because God is in the flesh. And so incredible testimony from people who don't even fully understand it. They just knew that they had never heard anything like it. They were so impressed. And John reinforces that so that we can see when we're hearing the voice of Jesus, we're hearing the voice of God. To which, of course, the spiritual leaders were incredibly receptive, weren't they? They were sent, they said, look, hey, let's dialogue about this. Let, tell me more. I want, I want to understand better. Why do you say that no man has ever spoke, spoke like this man? No, they were simply dismissive. You aren't fooled too, are you? Very condescending. It's a very cutting remark. We would use words that we, like, we aren't allowed to say to each other, right? Like, idiots. Stupid, morons. The, the dismissive nature, the condescending nature of the Pharisees shows the condition of their heart. You aren't fooled too, are you? In fact, they use, the, they use them, themselves as the measure, right, the gold standard. They're so proud and pretentious. What do they say to the, when these servants come back? 
And they almost dismiss them for their idiocy in thinking that somehow this guy is something unique. And they say, look at us. <laughs> have any of us believed? Have any of your rulers, have any of your leaders, have any of, your, of the rulers or the Pharisees, have any of us believed? Look at us. They're pointing out the servants' stupidity in believing what they, in saying what they said. They're so proud and pretentious and in fact, they're also judgmental, aren't they? They say, this crowd which doesn't know the law is accursed. In their minds, they probably were thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, where basically the, the theme of that particular verse is a person who doesn't uphold the law by living it is cursed. But yet they're closed off nature to possibly, to being open to possibly, the possibility that God is doing something in their midst. They're so proud and pretentious and judgmental that there's no way. It couldn't be that the crowd is right. It couldn't be that these servants who we gave one job to and they failed on it, it couldn't be that they're right because we're always right. Because we're the rulers. We're the ones who lead God's people. And if we don't hear it, if we don't know it, if we don't see it, if we don't feel it, if it's not true to us, then it ain't true, man. Interesting, right? When you think about those words of Jesus when he spoke in the temple and he said, you don't know him. You think some of this was targeted toward these, this particular subgroup? <laughs> Certainly it was. Some people were impressed. Some people were dismissed, dismissive of faith, of the potential, of the possibility that Jesus is who he is. Again, don't all these reactions exist today in the same way? at various levels with different subgroups of different types of people. Let's go on to the third set of, third interaction. There's a bit of an irony here, right? As we look into the third interaction, John points out to us that the Pharisees are basically saying that no important person believes in Jesus. But then what happens, in the, just as those words come out of their mouths, an important person speaks up. Nicodemus, the one who came to him, came to him previously, excuse me, and who was one of them, <laughs> one of those important guys, one of those rulers, a ruler of the Jews, according to John 3, said to them, now wait a second, guys, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So the first reaction we see, of course, from Nicodemus is there's some level of receptivity there, but there's also a level of responsibility that he seeks, that he has, senses that he has. Remember, Nicodemus was that same person that we first were introduced to in John chapter 3. He visited Jesus under the cover of night, right, knowing that it wouldn't, obviously, it wouldn't have been something that would have been approved by his fellow Pharisees. And he, go, he came to Jesus and he said to him, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God. It's interesting that he, use, he uses that plural pronoun, right? We know. So maybe it wasn't every Pharisee, but out of fear, probably many of them were un, unwilling to speak up. But he and, he and his courage, Nicodemus does. He said, we, we, we know that you're a teacher that comes from God because no one could do what you're doing. That is those signs. Remember the signs? 
all the signs in the, in the book of John. Simeon, that indicative mark, that, that, that token that helps someone to identify themselves as a unique thing. And so these signs that are pointing, and, and Nicodemus is saying, no one could do these signs that you're doing if God were not with him. And then, of course, in, in John chapter 3, we have some of those incredibly powerful and memorable verses that emerge from the interaction that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And, and, and Jesus says to him, and after Nicodemus says those words, almost complimentary words to Jesus, he, Jesus says, unless a man is born again, right, he cannot see the kingdom of God, something that's a very key aspect and feature of our faith, of being born again, of being regenerated, of having new life in Christ, which was first expressed to, through Jesus' ministry to Nicodemus. And then John 3, verses 16 and 17, the importance of those verses about how God gave us his son, that we, if we believe in him, we wouldn't perish but have eternal life because God didn't send his son into, into the world to condemn it, but to what? To save the world. So some key aspects in that interaction with Jesus. And, the, and, 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 John, and obviously it's clear as when we see that interaction with, in, in John chapter 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus. And here we see that there's some level of, of receptivity. But Nicodemus also is responsible. He's a responsible leader because Jewish laws did not allow for automatic condemnation. And he's kind of standing up and he's raising his hand and saying, wait a second guys, I, I don't know if I know yet. But neither do you. We haven't even heard from, them, from this guy. And so Nicodemus is kind of that, being that kind of dissenting voice in this leadership group and saying, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And of course, in the same way that the leaders were very receptive to the feedback that they got from the servants, they're even more willing to listen to one of their own, right? And what is their response? It's a very prejudiced response. You aren't from Galilee too, are you? Now this was something that was deeply held in the Jesus culture at, his, at the time that he was alive. This, this bias against Galilee was very clear. Do you remember when Nathaniel came to Philip and invited him and he told, told Philip that, yeah, you know, we have we found the one. We found the guy. We found the Messiah. And, wh- and what, did, what did Philip say back to Nathaniel? Some of you know in John chapter 1. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth is a town in Galilee. It was clearly held by, by, the, the, by the leadership and by many people. And, and in fact, even, even saw that interaction a little bit with the crowd when they're saying, well, wait a second, though. He's not, he can't be from Galilee, can he, right? And so they're, they kind of are, are either, it's either they're so prejudiced against Jesus because they, they are against Galileans, but because they say, to follow that up with and say not only giving him that question, they, they fully know where Nicodemus is a resident of Jerusalem. They know exactly where he is, where he's from, where he's living, all that kind of stuff. But they're using this as a way to poke holes in this idea that Jesus could actually be anything good because absolutely nothing good comes from Galilee. If that's not the case, if they're, if not, if they're not prejudiced, then they follow that up by either being and, and they, the next statement to, that, to, uh, to Nicodemus is investigate, in verse 52, investigate and you will see that no, pro, no prophet rises from Galilee. Now, if that's what they think, then they're badly mistaken. We know, in fact, that the prophet Jonah is from a town in Galilee. And there were likely prophets that came from Galilee, 
multiple prophets that came from Galilee. There's a rabbi, an ancient rabbi, who states that every province, every basically has a statement of how every area is represented in that prophetic uh, uh, realm. And so whether it's either pre- prejudiced or, or, or they're badly mistaken, clearly it is obvious that they are spiritually blind. Unable to see who he is and what he's there to do. Paul picks up on that theme, doesn't he? When he says to the Corinthians that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel, which is Christ. Think of that list. I love how this is like a window into our world. Think of the way that we experience this both on the receiving and giving end of it sometimes, right? All of those ways in which we can react to Jesus. But there's one way that God desires that we would react to him, to God in the flesh. And I've mentioned it on multiple occasions. And John says it in John chapter 20, verse 31. All of that which he has recorded about this person of Jesus is in hopes that you would believe and be saved. And folks, there are some of you here, sitting here today that are maybe in, in or around one of these, I don't know what are there, probably eight or ten things that we've looked at in terms of the different reactions, and some of them are, I understand, real close to, each, close to one another. But I would implore you today, and I would ask God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, that he would reveal to all of us sitting here and all of us watching online, that we would come to that place of simple, Trust, faith, and belief that Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is the bread that we'll eat that we will never hunger again. He is that which we will drink that we will never thirst again. He is that one that will allow God to fill us with his very self that we then might allow the overflow of that to spill onto others. He is the one. Would you stand as we pray? The worship team is going to conclude us with a song of worship. As they're preparing to do that, let's pray as we head into that time. Father God, thank you for the incredible gift that this particular chapter of your word has been to us for these last several weeks. And I pray, God, that for those who have maybe taken that first step of faith that you would deepen and, and, and burn into their heart, God, that simple faith and trust and dependence on you and trust in Jesus as the Savior. And for those, Lord, who maybe have been believers and walking with you for a while, that I pray that it has deepened our understanding of the person of Jesus and also our action of following him. We know that that can only come by the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So we pray the Holy Spirit would continue to work in us to bring about what you want, which is our transformation. We pray all of these things for your glory alone and through your son's name. Amen.